Good evening, everybody. How you doing tonight? Welcome to our Good Friday evening service. We are here to celebrate this, uh, this day, this time with you all. And uh, before we get into our time of worship, I just want to give you a little uh, intro of what we're going to be talking about. You know, back in uh, ancient times with kings and whatnot, not too long ago, but European monarchies of the past used to have a phrase that they used when a king would die. The phrase was, the king is dead, long live the king. The first time in recorded history that this phrase was used was in France, 1422 after the death of King Charles VI. When he had passed away, his viceroy came out in front of the people almost instantaneously, immediately, immediately as he passed and said, the king is dead. But then to to assure an immediate, instantaneous, peaceful transition to the next king, his heir, his son, King Charles VII, he immediately said, long live the king. And it was typical during those times that when kings would die and a new king would be raised up, that this phrase was said immediately upon the death of the king. The king is dead, long live the king. Well, we all know that Jesus Christ is the king predicted in scripture, so long awaited and looked forward to, and he was the king that came to the nation of Israel. He was also the king that Israel rejected. And so tonight in Luke chapter 23, we have recorded some of the events of the cross that happened to this king on this day we call Good Friday. And it's a day where we remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And so we will be taking communion together as the body. So for those of you that are here in the room, you should have gotten your communion cups as you came in the building. If you didn't, raise your hand and uh, we'll have one of our pastors here come in to get you some of those communion cups. If you're watching us online tonight, I would encourage you uh, to take this opportunity to go get your emblems for communion and we'll get that taken care of there. But today is a somber day. It's a day where we remember the great, great cost of our salvation. The price that was paid by another. Another who knew no sin, who had never sinned himself, and definitely did not deserve to suffer the judgment for sin. It is a day when it seemed that the king was dead. But it's also a day of celebration. And we celebrate. Because this day, we also celebrate that it was a price paid that we could never pay ourselves. It was a price that was so far beyond our ability to pay that it took God himself to come and pay that price for us. And the price was so big that unless another paid it for us, there would be no hope of salvation, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of heaven. But we celebrate because that price was paid. We celebrate because there is hope. And so before we get into the word tonight, we're going to spend some time lifting up the Lord's name in praise and worship. So if you'll join me in prayer right now, Father God, we thank you, Lord. God, this day, Good Friday, we are here to remember what you did for us. And yes, Lord, even though we are remembering your death, the great sacrifice that you did for us, Lord, we celebrate. 
because it was that sacrifice, Lord, that purchased our salvation, redeemed us. Lord, it is that sacrifice that made it possible for us to have a restored relationship with you, our creator. And God, we are so thankful for that. And so, Lord, we want to open up tonight by praising your holy name, remembering you in the worship that we bring to you, God, to express our gratitude for who you are and what you did. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, read with me out of Luke chapter 3. It says, Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, You say so. Down in verse 35, as Jesus was on the cross, it says, The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. And now down in verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. The central personality of, of all Old Testament prophecy was the king, the Messiah, God's king who would come and reign in an everlasting kingdom. And promises about this coming king were scattered all throughout the Old Testament. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, David, who was the ancient king of Israel, was given a promise by God. And it says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then in Psalms chapter 2, verse 1, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Then you move on to the prophecy in the book of Isaiah, the famous verses we read every Christmas season, right? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, 
The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Daniel the prophet saw the coming kingdom that was prophesied as he was called on to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And when he was called on to interpret this dream, he told the king that your dream was about the end of days. And it was about all the kings that would be on the earth at that time. And in Daniel 2.44, he said this, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it, but will itself endure forever. And then two chapters later, King Nebuchadnezzar prophesied about God in Daniel 4.3, and he said, how great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. That's just a sample of what the Old Testament has to say in predicting this coming king and this everlasting kingdom. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find that all those predictions were fulfilled. All the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, insisted over and over that Jesus Christ is the long-prophesied, long-awaited king, the Messiah. You might remember King Herod considered himself the king of the Jews because he was given rulership over the entire land of Judea. And he was very surprised one day when some men came from the east, wise men, magi as they were called, and they came and said, hey, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews that we may come and worship him. And it tells us in Matthew 2.3 when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod thought, king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews, <laughs> right? I can't have any competition, and so he set out to kill all the babies that were two years old and under to try and snuff out this king that was born, but he wasn't successful. Years later, when Jesus began his public ministry, he came across a guy named Nathaniel. As he came across this guy, Jesus said, whoa, here truly is an Israelite in which there is no deceit. And this guy, Nathaniel, said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, you know, before you were even praying under the fig tree, I knew all about you. Nathaniel amazed, right, because there was nobody there when he was praying under the fig tree. How did he know that? He says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And then Sunday, we looked at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. How in fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9, he came in riding on a young donkey. And we read that the crowd said in John 12, 13, it says they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And this brings us back to Luke chapter 3, verse 3. On the day of his crucifixion, Pilate asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, he said, you say so. 
And thus, when he was crucified, Pilate had a sign placed over him on the cross that said, this is the king of the Jews. You know, one of Jesus' favorite things to talk about was his kingdom. He loved talking about his kingdom, his coming kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, we have this whole collection of what's called the kingdom parables, right? Where Jesus kept saying over and over, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and the kingdom of heaven is like that. You know, and all these wonderful comparisons to what the kingdom of heaven was like. The phrase kingdom of heaven appears 33 different times in the gospel of Matthew. The phrase kingdom of God appears 14 times in the gospel of Mark, 32 times in the gospel of Luke, twice in the gospel of John. And then we read that when Jesus rose from the dead, as he was with his disciples, it says that he spoke to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Yet here in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, the king is dead. It says he breathed his last. Yes, he had a sign over his head that said this is the king of the Jews. But what good is a dead king? What can a dead king do? How can a dead king fulfill any promises? Before he died here in Luke chapter 23, our Savior shared some grace-filled words while he was on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. They're blinded by sin. Luke 23, 43, he speaks to a thief who is being crucified next to him, a criminal, worthy of his punishment, I'm sure, who professed belief in Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Such gracious words, right? Such loving words, such forgiving words, but still, he died. The king is dead. And nobody is here shouting, long live the king. We also read something else that happened on the, the day that the king died, something very unusual. In Luke 23, 44, it tells us, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the, down the middle. Now Jesus was on the cross for about six hours before he died. He was nailed to the cross about nine in the morning. And then a few hours later, about noon, something very unusual happened. It tells us that this mysterious darkness covered the entire land for the next three hours. It says the sun's light failed. Now it's interesting because this fact of this darkness happening in the middle of the day for three hours, it, it's attested to in other places historically. It's attested to in other ancient writings outside of the Bible. There was one Greek historian who was named Thallus. His writings are generally accepted to have been written around 52 AD, and in his writings, he wrote about a darkness that covered the land when this man Jesus was crucified. Now, in his writings, he attributed this darkness to a solar eclipse. 
Now, Thallus's actual writings have been lost to time, but we know about his writings because other ancient historians referenced Thallus's writings and what he said. One of the guys that, that quoted Thallus's writings was another ancient historian named Julius Africanus. In Africanus, as he was referencing Thallus's writings, he disputes Thallus's claim that it was a solar eclipse that caused the darkness. He disputes that because the date of the Passover, it was a high moon feast, and you know the way solar eclipses work, and you know the moon has to be in a certain place and all that, so it couldn't have been a solar eclipse, Julius Africanus says. He attributes the darkness to a supernatural event rather than a natural event. And of course, our modern understanding, right? They didn't have this understanding back in, but our modern understanding of how eclipses work support this, right? A solar eclipse couldn't have happened because the moon was in the wrong place. And some go, well, maybe it was a lunar eclipse. But the problem is eclipses only last for a matter of minutes, not three hours, so the concept that it was a, a natural occurrence is pretty much disputed by modern science. But you know what? Our God isn't natural. He's supernatural. Right? God could spin earth on his finger like a basketball if he wanted to. So bringing a darkness over the land, that's nothing for God. Which is why I believe our text says the sun's light failed. That's what happened. It doesn't say how the light failed. It just says that it did. And historians attest to it, although they try and find ways to explain it. Another historian named Tertullian, an early church historian, in 197 AD was, was writing to defend Christianity to magistrates in Carthage. And in his writings, he claimed that the Roman archives at that time held an independent account of this darkness happening during the crucifixion of Christ. It says this, Tertullian said, and yet, nailed upon the cross, he exhibited many notable signs by which his death was distinguished from all others. At his own free will, he, with a word, dismissed from him his spirit, anticipating the executioner's work. In the same hour, too, the light of day was withdrawn when the sun was at that very time in its meridian blaze. Those who were not aware that this had happened those who were not aware that this had been predicted about Christ no doubt thought in an eclipse. But then he says this, and we have these writings today. You yourselves have the account of this world portent still in your archives. That phrase world portent is, is referring to some type of supernatural sign as he's putting it. But he's writing to, to non-believers and he goes, you guys still have record of this in your archives. But what's the deal with the darkness? Why did the darkness cover the land during the last three hours of Jesus' life? I want to give three observations about the darkness that I think highlight its significance for us tonight as we're remembering the death of Jesus. The first observation is I think the darkness was a darkness of secrecy. And I say that because of this. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of the Jewish faith would enter into this place called the Holy of Holies, to sprinkle the blood that had been, been, been sacrificed from the animals. He would go in and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant right onto the mercy seat. And that blood was meant to cover the people's sins for another year. But in the Holy of Holies was where this, this place was that, that, that the Ark of the Covenant existed. Um, it was where God's presence was. 
But the Holy of Holies was separated from the room outside of it by this great veil that was three to four inches thick, 60 feet long, 30 feet high. It was huge. Histories tell us that this veil was so massive it took 300 men just to lift it up onto the pole so it stayed in place. But behind this veil was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there were no windows. There were no candles. There were no light sources other than the presence of God's glory. And this is supported in Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 12, at the dedication of Solomon's temple. It says this, Then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in total darkness. Solomon says, I have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 1, we have the same telling that God said, I will dwell in total darkness. And then in Psalm 18, verse 11, same language. God is light. He didn't need light. He is light. But where he dwelt in that holy of holies was a dark place. And so once a year, the high priest would go behind the veil, would go into this holy of holies, would go into this dark place, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the nation. And he could only do that once a year. That transaction, it was, it was like a secret transaction. It was a hidden transaction, right? Nobody else got to see what took place. It was behind the veil. This secret transaction was between the high priest and God alone in the darkness of the Holy of Holies. And when the high priest went in there once a year, it was as if the whole nation was holding its breath. (gasps) Are our sins forgiven? (laughs) Right? It tells us that the high priest, tradition says there was bells on the end of his robe, right? Because as he was behind the veil, they're listening. Jingle, 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 jingle. Okay, he's still walking around. Because if the high priest was unclean in any way, if he had sin in his life, he wasn't prayed up and ready to go into the presence of God, it says that God would strike him down in the Holy of Holies. Tradition says that's why they tied a rope around his ankle, right? Because if you heard jingle, jingle, thud, bad news, pull him out, let's get another one in there. But that one guy, once a year, would go into that place. And if he came out alive, yay. Our sins are covered for another year. Let's celebrate. Well, in that darkness that covered the land for that last three hours of Jesus' life, as his blood flowed, as he died on the cross, there was another secret transaction taking place. A transaction that only the high priest could make. Hebrews tells us in chapter 6, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ went behind the veil into the darkness, into that dark place where God was to serve as our high priest. To take the blood of the sacrifice and to sprinkle it on the mercy seat, so to speak. 
But the blood that he shed, the blood that he offered for our forgiveness was not the imperfect blood of sheeps and goats. Blood that was only able to cover our sins. He offered the perfect, spotless, sinless blood of the perfect Lamb of God, able to wash away our sins permanently. The second thing I want to observe about this darkness was that it was a darkness of wickedness. As this darkness fell upon perfect Jesus dying on the cross, I believe it represented wickedness. You know, darkness in the Bible, it's often, not every single time, but often a symbol of sin. Darkness is a symbol of wickedness. And one of the very first creative acts that God did, right? You go back to Genesis. He said, let there be what? Light. Let there be light in creation. And that light was, was, was physical, right? And you got the sun and the stars and all this physical light that existed in his creation. But throughout the Bible, light is also seen as a symbol for something spiritual. Right? When a person is walking in sin, we say they're walking in darkness. The Bible says that. But when they get saved, when they come out of that darkness, we then say they're now walking in light. Right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this very thing. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so walk as children of light. In Luke 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the temple police came to arrest Jesus, it says in Luke 22:53 in the ISV translation, Jesus says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so we know that it was the dark, wicked forces of this world that were coming upon Jesus, that were coming to extinguish the light of the world. And so this darkness, I believe it was a darkness of secrecy because there was a hidden transaction taking place. It was a darkness of wickedness, but it was also a darkness of judgment. In the Jewish writings called the Talmud, they often note that, that God reserves darkness for when he wants to punish people for some unusual sin. In the Bible, we see things that look just like that, the ninth plague in the book of Exodus, right? As God was bringing plagues upon Egypt, the ninth plague was what? A plague of darkness that covered the land for three days. And in Exodus 10:21, it says that it was a darkness that could be felt, Right? You go to places with high humidity, you could feel the air you're walking through. It's gross. <laughs> it was a darkness that could be felt. It was so heavy and oppressive. But then on the other side, in Revelation, it tells us that the fifth bold judgment that'll be poured out during the tribulation period is a judgment of darkness. And it tells us that it's a judgment poured out on the throne of the beast and its kingdom. The day that Jesus died, the day that the king died was truly a dark day. And I believe that darkness was a judgment on sin. You see, he was put to death as the lamb, taking upon himself the sins of the entire world, taking our place so that God the Father can judge wickedness, so that he could judge sin, so that he could pour out his wrath rightly upon sin, and he judged it in the person of Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. All sin of humanity was judged. Every sin of humanity was judged in the person of Jesus. Especially the unusually wicked sin of rejecting God the Son. And the one who became sin for us was put to death in our place. The king was dead. So it was appropriate that darkness would reign for three hours. But Jesus also said something else about his kingdom when he was speaking to Pilate, right? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. He said, if it were, my servants would rise up and fight, right? But my kingdom's not of this world, so, so that's not gonna happen. Jesus didn't come to be a, a political revolutionary. He didn't come to be a military revolutionary. He didn't have any earthly political or military kingdom. His kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. And today it still is. One day there will be a physical kingdom with Jesus reigning. Hallelujah, looking forward to that. But right now today it is still a spiritual kingdom. And today, here and now, on this earth, Jesus wants to rule as king in the hearts and the lives of his people, as many people as will let him. He came to build a kingdom populated by people with changed hearts, changed natures, changed lives. His kingdom has been and is still currently being built up right now. And if you're in this room tonight or watching online and you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know that he is the king. He is the sovereign of your life. Sure, we can't see him visually, Sure, we can't touch him physically, but spiritually we're changed and we know it. We know it. We're different than we were before. And you know the difference between living under your own rule and living under the rule of Jesus, don't we? But one day, Revelation eleven fifteen tells us this. The angel will blow the trumpet and loud voices in heaven will proclaim the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We look forward to that. We look forward to that time. But today, today from the world's perspective, from the perspective of those that do not know him, they say the king is dead. The king is dead. King Jesus, the crucified king, is dead. You know, the cost of the kingdom that he is building, the cost to populate that kingdom with holy subjects who are forgiven, washed clean of all sin, made right and made righteous in the eyes of their Savior, the cost was the pure, perfect, spotless, uncontaminated life of its king. But for those that do know him, we know indeed his kingdom is not of this world, amen? We know that. What can a dead king do? Well, when that king is God in the flesh, 
Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, the answer is everything. Everything. We know that his death fulfilled the promise to set us free from the power of sin and death. We know that his death fulfilled every promise that he made to redeem us and to restore us. And we know that his death redeemed us. We know that his death purchased our salvation. We know that his death paid the price in full, once and for all, forever. And we know that his physical body may have died, but he didn't stay dead. We know, as they say, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. And so as the world stops that the king is dead, we who are alive proclaim, long live the king. Amen? There's a song by one of my favorite Christian hardcore bands. I'm not going to play it for you because that would scare some of you, I think. But this band's name was For Today, and they wrote this song called My Confession. And I want to read the lyrics to you because this song captures what Good Friday means to me. It says, broken men are delivered from their bondage to sin. The hardest hearts break in surrender, and heaven conquers once again. So I lay down my life for the world to see that there was only one who could break the chains that bound me. Call me a fool for this stand, but I would die for that man. My king is alive. My king is alive, and he is worthy of everything. I know I'm not the only one who felt the hands of death, but I have found the only one who can restore this life. I am convinced he can save you because I was once in need of a savior. So in this moment, I declare for the lost and the hopeless, deliverer, deliver us. Deliverer, deliver us. And here I stand unashamed. So call me a fool for this stand, but I would still die for that man because my king is alive. My king is alive and I will hold fast to the profession of my hope because he who promised is faithful. Time and time again in my weakness, he has been strong for me. I have not just heard about him, I've heard him, and he's alive, and he has conquered the grave once and for all. You know, when we come together in communion to celebrate this, it's all about remembering what Jesus did. It's about remembering his death on the cross. It's about remembering the cost of our sin, the price paid for our redemption. And it was a high and heavy price. And so tonight we're gonna be celebrating together right now. If you have the cups, I'm gonna explain how these work for you right now. If you're online, hopefully you remember to get your emblems. If not, hurry, hurry, carefully. Don't trip and fall or something like that, right? But if you're in the room, you have these, these communion cups we've been using for a couple years now. Um, if you're new here, I want to give you the quick instructions. There's, there's two lids. There's a really thin plastic piece, and then there's a thicker tab underneath it, okay? If you carefully peel back the very thin 
top lid, you will reveal the, the cracker here, the bread. And I want to explain to you what this means in communion. You know, when Jesus took the bread, the word tells us that he took it, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. When you look at the crucifixion and you see the beating that he went through, you see the torture that he went through, you see the agonizing, painful beatings he took, we can't ever forget that that was for us. That was for me. Because I'm the criminal that broke God's law, not Jesus. I'm the criminal that sinned against him. I'm the one who's broken the Ten Commandments and and every other law. (laughs) I'm the one. I deserved the punishment. But Jesus took it upon himself and he wanted us to remember that, to never forget that in communion, when we partake of the bread, that it's his body that is represented here. It represents his sinless body, right? There's no leaven in the bread, so it's not puffed up with sin, which is a picture of sin in Scripture. And it was given for us. It's meant for us to remember how he took the full wrath of God upon himself for all sin and all unrighteousness. The full judgment of God that was due us fell upon him. And he was the only one that could do that because he was the only one without sin. He was the only sacrifice that could be made that was perfect and spotless and without corruption. And without his sacrifice, the darkness that covered all of our lives would never go away. The darkness that ruled our lives could never be dealt with. And we would be forever lost to the wickedness of our fallen, selfish, sinful natures. And rightly judged, rightly judged, condemned to suffer the penalty for it forever. But Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior, He took our place. He took our place, the criminal's place on the cross. He took that place for us, and our darkness fell upon him as he suffered the full wrath of God for you and me. Every sinful action, every sinful thought, every sinful cause, every sinful effect, it all demands the holy judgment of God Almighty. But because Jesus loves you so much, because Jesus loves me so much, he willingly let the darkness of judgment fall on himself instead of us. And he did that so that we would be spared. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for suffering judgment in our place. We thank you, God, 
that you willingly went as a lamb to the slaughter to be brutalized, to be rightly dealt with in the fact that you became our sin and God was judging that sin. Lord, you were perfect and sinless, but you took it upon yourself. God, we never want to forget that. We never want to forget that your body was broken for us, that we would be healed, that your body was brutalized for us, that we would be spared. That God, you didn't change who you are to let us in, but you fully satisfied your justice as a holy and a righteous God, Lord, and we see that in the death of your son on the cross. And we thank you, God, because without you, there was no way for us to be set free. Lord, without your sacrifice, there was no way for us to have the chains of sin broken in our lives. And so God, we say thank you for going to the cross for us. Let's partake together. So now if you very carefully grab the thicker tab and very carefully pull that back, it'll open up the cup where the juice is at. The scripture tells us that when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Because the old covenant was that high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year, hopefully jingle jangling all the way, to sprinkle the blood of goats and lambs onto that mercy seat, to pay the way for one more year. And that would have to be done over and over and over again. And it created a system where people started to think that, well, if I just did the religious thing, then I could live however I want. If I just did the religious thing, I'm okay with God. That was never the point. The law was never meant to be a do this and you'll be righteous. God's word says the law was meant to be a schoolmaster to drive you to Christ. It was meant to be a mirror that you would look at and you would say, I am not righteous. There is no possible way I can be righteous. Nothing in me is righteous. God, please save me. In which God would say, I've been waiting for you to ask. The new covenant is not one of religious observance and ritual. The new covenant gets, I think, back to what the covenant was originally intended to be. Just love me. Let's have a relationship. Let me change you from the inside out. Admit that you're not righteous. Sure, we have good days, but at the end of the day, we're ultimately selfish and wicked sinners. 
There are none righteous, no, not one. And it's not about reading your Bible and going to church, singing worship songs, praying. All those are good things. Please don't misunderstand me. But none of those things make you a righteous person. Only faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that was shed as he hung on the cross and died for you, only faith in that sacrifice is what brings us into a place of having his righteousness imputed into our lives. I am so thankful he did the work. I am so thankful his work works because there is nothing in me that could pay the price. And so Jesus said, remember that. Remember that in him we are cleansed of all sin and unrighteousness. Remember that in him we are given a new heart. In him we are given a new nature. In him we are given a nature that that can be free from wickedness. One that could live holy. And he wanted us to remember in communion to never forget that he is our high priest, offered his blood on the altar, and paid the price we could never pay. And through our faith in that, we then get to live each day forgetting what is behind us, forgetting the old ways, walking from the darkness that was our former lives into the light that is this glorious relationship with Jesus Christ looking forward to the kingdom that we have been made citizens of. Amen. But we remember that because he shed his blood for us and that we have received, we've accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, that we are children of God, beloved, saved, transformed for his glory. Father, we thank you, God, so much for your shed blood. God, if you just were suffering the judgment of our sin, but you didn't shed your blood to wash us clean, God, we may be avoiding the judgment of our sin, but we would still have depraved hearts. And God, it was your shed blood, the word says, washes us clean of all sin and unrighteousness. Your death on the cross paid the price for the penalty that was due us, God. Lord, you not only took the full wrath of God upon yourself, but you then and went wiped the slate clean of every offense we've committed. God, that as you look at us through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, you see us as holy people, spotless, blameless, God, we are so unworthy of that. But we receive it because you offered it freely. Lord, you say whosoever would call on your name would believe in you. God, that that person would receive the free gift of salvation you offer to them. God, we thank you so much for paying that price that we can never pay. We thank you so much for changing us from the inside out and giving us new hearts that we would be able to be people
through the power of who you are to live and glorify your holy name. We thank you, God, for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for this good Friday. We know, Lord, it cost you everything. But Lord, for the joy that was set before you, you endured it. We thank you. We love you. Let's partake together. I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to Sunday. You know, Good Friday is just half the story because tonight we look at the thing and we go, yeah, the king is dead. But just a couple days from now, long live the king as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. I look forward to sharing that time with all of you here in the room. We're going to be live streaming both at 6 a.m. for our sunrise service and at 10 a.m. for our family celebration service. I pray that God would richly bless you, that God would bless your lives, that God would bless your relationships, that we would all remember and never forget that we are wicked, broken people, and God had to die to save us, but he did it because he loves us, and we can be changed people. Let's close tonight in worship. God bless you guys, and we'll see you Sunday.